Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Selling Greenville, your favorite real estate podcast here in Greenville, South Carolina. I am your host, as always, Stan McCune, realtor here in Greenville, technically Greer, but you know, we call it all Greenville. And uh, this podcast is all about real estate in the local Greenville market. If this is the first time you've listened to a podcast, or maybe the second or third time, I just want to remind you guys, make sure you hit that little subscribe button. It helps the show. Make sure that you uh, download episodes as well. Uh, I, I don't think you necessarily need to do that every time, but when you do it, it also helps uh, helps the show, helps us to get out to more people. Uh, Apple likes that in their algorithm. Um, but more so than that, please leave us a review um, and at, at least a rating, but also ideally a review that's really helpful. Um, we love to see that come through. Um, and if you need me, if you need to reach out to me, my contact information is in the show notes. Those of you that have reached out to me, you know that I um, pride myself in being responsive. I try to be as responsive as possible. I'm constantly on my phone. I live on my phone. That's just the way it is. Um, weekends, weekdays, weeknights, whatever the case may be, reach out to me. I am available. All right. Today, we're going to be talking about assembling your real estate dream team, assembling your real estate dream team. And let me preface this by saying, um, for a lot of people, assembling their real estate dream team uh, looks like them basically going through me as their realtor to kind of help them to do that. Um, And that is totally fine. That's one of the values uh, of a good realtor. We talked about that before. But I wanted to break it down. Some people prefer to be a little bit more hands-on. They want to do some of that legwork themselves. Um, And that's totally fine for those that want to do that themselves. I've got no problem with that. I'm totally fine with clients that want to use people that they have used in the past or that they have good rapport with. Um, That is a totally acceptable way of going about this. But I want to give you a filter through which to understand how I assemble my team. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're assembling your own team, or if if there is uh, maybe one part of the puzzle that you want to assemble, that you want to be more hands-on, or whatever the case may be, I want you to have a filter to put that through, to understand what all the dynamics are that go into um, putting a good team together to make sure that you have uh, a real estate team that can help you when you're buying and selling. But but particularly, I'm thinking from the standpoint of, of buying real estate here. Um, so we're just going to go down the line of like several key people in the real estate transaction um, and discuss what aspects of those people are the most important aspects, the things that you need to take into consideration. And I want to start with the lender. This is a very important uh, part, maybe outside of your realtor, the most important part of the process. And we need to start by uh, by me explaining that not all lenders are equal. They're not all equal. There is a lot of variety among lenders. You've got mortgage brokers. These are guys that they issue the loan, but then they are going to immediately sell it to another bank. Um, and then, you know, you're never going to actually, uh, or you might, or you might not actually make a payment directly to the broker you might just, you know, they might sell it to BB&T and you just start immediately making payments to BB&T, even though that's not 
who you originally went through. Um, there are local banks, banks that are um, right here in town. There are the, uh, the big box types of, of banks that are national. I referenced BB&T, Bank of America. Um, there are kind of the online-only banks, which would be kind of like the Quicken Loans or, uh, you know, Chase Bank also does technically have branches, but I would kind of lump them kind of more into the, the online type of options. Um, there are credit unions as well, obviously, um, that uh, operate in a little bit of a different way than, you know, a local lender. They're like a hyper-local lender, but not quite the same as just a standard local bank. So there's all sorts of, of different banks, and they all have their pros and cons. Obviously, what people tend to gravitate to, tend to think about immediately is who's going to give me the best rates, right? Who's going to, out of all of these, give me the best rates? And that obviously is a very, very important consideration. Um, and I recommend that you, at the very least, um, price things out from a local lender, from a, uh, from I should say, a local bank, um, a local credit union, and a mortgage broker. It's, it's good to have two to three people involved. Now, now you want to make sure if they're pulling your credit that your credit can handle a few different hits. Um, but normally when you're buying a house, they're expecting that uh, to happen. You know, when they look at your credit uh, in underwriting, they'll see, okay, you had a few banks hit your credit all at the same time. That's just because you were you were shopping around for, for mortgages. Usually, and I have to say usually because it, it differs for everyone, that's something you want to talk to with your lender, but usually it's it's going to be okay for that to happen. Um, but there's another beyond just the rates, what how, how cheap your closing costs are, how low your interest rate is going to be. There's another very important factor in choosing a lender, and that is some lenders are actually going to be more attractive to the seller. And when the seller is reviewing offers, if, if all else is equal, they might choose an offer that has one lender versus another. Okay. Now I'm, I'm doing a quick drive by, but I want to, to go down a little bit deeper into both of these concepts. Let me start by saying this. In my experience, um, the best options tend to be the local mortgage brokers and the, the local banks. Credit unions can be a good option for outside-the-box types of things, um, but oftentimes they end up being actually a little bit more expensive than just the, the normal local banks um, or just the normal uh, mortgage brokers. And the reason for that is that credit unions tend to hold on to the loans themselves. They're, they're kind of operating in a different space. They're not going to sell loans, whereas Regular banks, oftentimes they will they will hold some, they'll sell some. I mentioned that brokers, they always sell the loans. And so um, credit unions tend to be good for creative types of, of deals because they're looking at their portfolio of loans that they have and deciding, okay, we we have enough space to be able to, to lend for this um, type of property but it's going to be a little bit higher interest rate. So oftentimes our interest rate is is the going to be a little bit higher than you'll experience with some of these other banks that are handling more conventional types of loans. Um, and, and so oftentimes a credit union isn't your best bet unless you're doing something a little bit more creative. With uh, and, and that's 
strictly with regard to uh, to the the rates and the pricing and all of that. Your um, your online or uh, big box types of banks are really nice uh, from one standpoint, which is oftentimes they have a lot of things that are just obviously online, <laughs> um, but a lot of things that you can do without communicating with people. And for a lot of people, that's really attractive. You know, fill out your application online, get just get an automated pre-approval letter, maybe. Um, you can just go back and just enter something in and they'll just immediately send you back a new pre-approval letter. I mean, there, there's a lot of great things with that. I've had some clients that use Quicken Loans that's like that. It's like really quick, really efficient, and it's great. Um, but there's a problem with those types of banks. And, and the problem is that it's only efficient when you're when everything goes smoothly, when everything goes according to plan, when you don't have any hiccups, when you're not under the gun, when you don't need something out of the ordinary to be done. If you need something out of the ordinary to be done, you're using a Chase Bank uh, or a Quicken Loans. Uh, and in most cases, a bank like even Bank of America or BB&T, unless you have just a very close relationship with a personal banker, um, you're going to end up in a situation or, or you may end up in a situation where you need something to get done and you can't reach the person to get it done, or you're just waiting for a phone call for a long time or an email for a long time, and it can be a really big deal. And so let me tell you, me as a realtor, I have run into this on multiple occasions. If I'm looking at two offers, and offer number one has uh, the lender as Bank of Travelers Rest, a local bank, and offer number two says Chase Bank on it. You know which offer that I would want if I were the if I were the seller. Everything else is equal. I'm going to go with the one with Bank of Travelers Rest. And that's a just a small little bank, but you know what? I know people over there. I can reach someone over there. I can get someone on the phone over there. They they care. They're a smaller bank. These transactions mean more to them. Do you think that uh, a $250,000 mortgage means a lot to Chase Bank, which is valued at who knows how many, I don't know, I don't know how many billions they're valued at, but your little mortgage to them, it's, it's just a drop in the bucket, right? And they're probably just going to pass that off to, to someone else. It doesn't really matter to them. Um, and so uh, having a local lender, I think, the outside of just the rates, them being local is one of the most important things to me. If you need to get something done, you can reach that person. You, know, you have someone, a banker, that if you needed to, you could go to the bank and talk to them. That's powerful. To them, that transaction is a lot more meaningful than it is to these massive financial institutions that are doing almost everything exclusively online and don't really want to handle your phone call, particularly now during COVID when everyone is saying, uh, we have higher than normal volume, uh, call volume, that is. Um, listen, all of those banks are going to say that now, and that's, that's frustrating. Um, tied into all of this, and I've already alluded to this, but the responsiveness and availability of the banker is a really big deal. So you might get a local banker that's not super responsive. Let me tell you, I have bankers that I work with, both mortgage brokers that are local, um, people that work at local banks, 
um, bankers at local banks, whatever you want to call them, they pick up their phones on the weekends. If I need something on a Saturday, I know I can get it. Good luck getting that from, from a Quicken Loans if you're under the gun for something and you know you have uh, uh, not started the process or whatever, or, or there's something, again, out of the ordinary. You're not going to be able, almost certainly, to reach someone to get that thing done. And being able to communicate with a person and to know that they are going to get back in touch with you or that they're going to get back in touch with me as your realtor, that is a really powerful thing. And that is something that really separates the wheat from the chaff when it comes to lenders. I had a situation um, a few months ago where I had some clients that a home came on the market very unexpectedly that uh, that they wanted. They, we were kind of un, unprepared because they had kind of given up. They'd kind of given up. Crazy market. A lot of people giving up these days. Um, as a realtor, we have to do a lot of work uh, with, for our buyer clients, and, and that's just the way it is right now. Um, but they had given up, and the house that they really wanted actually came back on the market. It fell, fell out from being under contract, came back on the market. We immediately uh, went to look at it. And they were not pre-approved or anything. You know, we had, uh, their pre-approval letter was like really, really old. And, you know, it, we just kind of needed to, to restart some of those things. And it was a Saturday. And they were just like, well, banks aren't open on Saturday. Like, how are we going to, we need to make an offer today. How are we going to do this? And I was like, oh, no, uh, they'll answer the phone for me. And while we were in the house, I called a lender and second ring he answered the phone within an hour he had me a pre-approval letter that is what you need now if you just really have an affinity for the chase banks and and the quicken loans and for all of those i listen i have closed transactions with them but just understand you might find yourself in this competitive market you might be finding yourself putting yourself at a disadvantage for going with those banks. And they might be offering you all sorts of credits and all sorts of different things, but what good is that if you lose out on the house because uh, you're not going with someone local? That is a very real thing, trust me. I talk to other realtors all the time and they're like, I do not want to deal with, with those banks. Give me someone local. Anyone that's been doing this for a while knows that. And so you need to, to keep that in mind. That needs to be a factor uh, a major factor in your decision. So we're going to spend the, the most amount of time there on the lenders, uh, but there are a lot of other ones to consider as well. Your inspector. Um, now, obviously, I have different inspectors that I work with, um, and I can recommend if you don't have one. But really, inspectors are a, an interesting thing, right? Because um, their job is very, it, it's both broad and also specific. So they're trying to find, like, within two hours, um, kind of like all the big stuff that's wrong with the house, a bunch of little stuff, and then, you know, be able to tell you, okay, the AC is here, the furnace is here, this is here, these are the ages for all these different things. So it's kind of a hodgepodge of different things that they're doing. And the best inspector is someone that's thorough, but not nitpicky, right? I I don't care if, uh, if I'm buying a house, I don't care if you know, there's this little thing here, uh, you know, this doorknob is loose. Okay, that's great. 
make a note of that. Make a note that the doorknob is loose or that or that the door needs to be adjusted because, you know, it's striking uh, a, a part of the ground or something. That's that's an, an important detail. But we don't need an inspection report full of like 50 of those things. And then but then like neglecting the fact that there's like hail damage on the roof. Right. There needs to be a thoroughness but but not being nitpicky and also understanding what is important and highlighting those important things um and and it, it can be tough when you're communicating with an inspector to know you know if you're interviewing them for instance to know if they're like that and and you know some of that you need to kind of go with your gut you need to say um okay how does this inspector communicate is he, you know, uh, comfortable in his own skin or her own skin? Um, those are very important factors as well. And that can kind of help you to understand, you know, whether it's a good inspector or not, strictly based on their communication style. Um, and, and obviously, that's a, an important point as well. An inspector needs to be able to communicate well because they're going to have a bunch of written communications and you're probably going to talk to them either in person or on the phone as well. Um, some inspectors have a hard time communicating without sounding alarmist or without, you know, being like, oh, man, yeah, there are just a bunch of things, you know, like that's not helpful. And I've actually fired inspectors. There's an inspector uh, that uh, I had a few clients use that I fired him because his communication was terrible. Never going to use that guy again. Um, and he was also a bit nitpicky, interestingly. Those two things kind of go hand in hand. The background of the inspector is helpful as well. You know, it's, it's particularly useful if they have some type of a background in construction, um, if they have done uh, things hands-on, you know, not just go, they didn't just go to school to become an inspector. Um, now, there are some guys that just went to school to become an inspector, and they're very good at it. So I don't want to completely poo-poo that idea. Um, but obviously, if they if they have more of a construction type of background, that's that can be really useful. That is great type of experience uh, for them. And as well, some inspectors kind of get overwhelmed. Um, I, I mean, the reality of the situation, we all know this. If you go into work on Monday and you have a huge stack of papers on your desk. Granted, a bunch of you now are working remotely, you're working from home, so maybe your stack is, a, is an email stack that's been piling up over the weekend. Um, but um, it, those days, you don't care for those days, right? You would rather come in and be like, okay, I can get out in front of this. And it, you know, inspectors will, sometimes they'll, they'll go to a house, and, and if it's a Massive house with a bunch of problems. That is a bit overwhelming, just naturally, humanly speaking. But you want an inspector that embraces that, that embraces the challenge, that doesn't let the overwhelm get to him. Maybe he's kind of like, oh man, I wish this were a little bit easier. But he doesn't communicate that. He doesn't let you know that. He doesn't make a big deal about it, make a bunch of snide remarks. Those are the types of things that separate um, a good inspector from a bad inspector. A good inspector is just going to embrace the challenge good inspector is going to be willing to uh, to get dirty, go in that crawl space, get on that roof, do all these different things, and not just be a guy with a clipboard walking around finding all the places that don't, uh, that, you know, that the caulk is dried out on. 
those are not the good inspectors. Um, I am very picky when it comes to the inspectors that I work with. Ones that communicate well, are willing to get get dirty, not get overwhelmed, not, you know, whatever, uh, get frustrated when it's a difficult type of inspection. And, you know, when they communicate, they communicate in a way that's clear, that's accurate, that uh, doesn't color the house in in a uh, inaccurate way in people's minds. Um, and and by the way, all of this is important as well because this is usually I always I have to get permission from my clients to do this, but usually we send if you're the buyer we send the inspection report to the seller so that they can review it. That helps them to see it and and to uh, make sure that they understand and that they do the repairs correctly. And they might call the inspector. Um, they might reach out and and have questions and. Depending on on that inspector's personality, um, that can really uh, be a positive or really be a negative. So there is a lot to consider there. Um, so that's your your inspectors. How about your appraisers? Okay. Well, you're not going to be interviewing your appraiser ever. I mean, I guess if you need a one-off appraisal, for instance, if you're not getting uh, you're not getting financing. You don't need an appraisal because you're getting financing. You you have a unique house and you want an appraisal done just because you want to see what the house is worth. Okay, then reach out to uh, reach out to an appraiser and you know have the conversation with them about how they uh, how they approach their appraisals, what they consider um, valuable or not valuable. Ask, Probe some of the questions that you have about your house, why you think your house is unique, and how they might approach that, okay? So, so you can go ahead and kind of get a sense by talking to the appraisal about those, the appraiser about those things. When you're getting financing, guess what? Guess who picks the appraiser? Well, kind of sort of the bank, but also kind of sort of not. We, there's a lot of regulations here, and it, it's kind of like a random pool that the lender ends up selecting uh, or, or getting assigned an appraiser from. And so the appraiser is a very, very important piece of the puzzle, um, but you have very limited control over the appraiser. What happens if your appraisal comes in low? What, what ramifications do you have? Well, usually um, if you're not wanting to bring more money or if the seller is not willing to reduce their price or if you're not willing to back out of the contract, um, your option then is you, you can't just like ask for another appraisal. Like that's a, a conflict of interest. Um, that's the bank not following protocol. Usually at that point, we'll have to, to change lenders unless you can prove that the appraisal was not done correctly. Sometimes we can contest appraisals that can, that can be done, um, but it's tricky. Contesting an appraisal usually doesn't work. Um, that is something that I can do. And, um, and I feel like I'm pretty good at it, but appraisers, you know, it's not like they're haphazardly doing their job. Like if they put a number in writing, like they're accountable for that number. If they mess that up, that's not good. That doesn't reflect well on them. And so, uh, usually they stand by the number that, uh, that they give. So all of that to take into consideration, you have limited control over, over the appraiser, very important part of the puzzle uh, 
if you run into a, a low appraisal situation, then at that point, we've got to talk. We've got to talk through your options. Are you able to bring more money to the closing table? Uh, is your is a seller willing to come down on the price? What what are the options? And that will all come down to the way the contract is written, what terms, whether you have an appraisal contingency, uh, how much money you're you're planning to bring down, how much more money you could bring down, uh, how much leverage you have with the seller, et cetera, et cetera. All of those things come into play at that point. All right. Next one, number four on my list, and and this isn't really in any order outside of the lender to me was the most important one. But number four is your insurance agent. Now, a lot of people just have an agent that they uh, have always used, and and that's totally fine. Listen, that doesn't impact the transaction. That's the nice thing. No, but nowhere on the contract does it say uh, that you have to list your insurance agent or that you're getting the home insured or, or anything like that. So, so that's nice. But if you're getting financing, you do have to have homeowner's insurance. And so you need to make sure that you can get homeowner's insurance. Some properties, uh, if you're buying a fixer-upper, for instance, there can be some challenges to getting insurance. If you buy an old house that has like old knob and tube uh, electrical in it, guess what? You're going to have to find a pretty creative insurance company. And there are some that will do it, but, but you, you might have to go a few insurance companies deep in your phone uh, or on on the web, and, and of course I can help with this as well. Um, but the the first insurance company that you call might not be able to to finance that, or sorry, to uh, provide insurance on that property, and so that is a a very important consideration. I think that having a local insurance agent, although not necessary, obviously they can be licensed in a state but operate out of a different state. Um, but I think having a local insurance agent is helpful because they might need to. I've had situations where an agent had to go and and take pictures of the property. There was a question about the property that came up uh, as they were uh, underwriting the uh, the policy, and the agent had to to go out there and actually uh, snap some pictures. Um, obviously, it's very important for them to be responsive, just like uh, just like these other ones the, for particularly like the lender, but you want your insurance agent to be responsive, someone that you can go to with questions, someone that um, doesn't take multiple days to respond to an inquiry. Um, Sometimes, again, things happen quickly um, and you need to be able to get a quick answer. Having a local responsive agent uh, is, uh, is important for you. Obviously, ones that are helpful and that come up with creative solutions, I think that is perhaps the most underrated part of working with a homeowner's uh, insurance agent. Um, and, and for a lot of people, that's not important because they're not buying creative properties. If you're just buying a normal property that you want to live in, then it, it's probably not going to be that big of a deal that they have to come up with creative solutions or whatever the case may be. Um, but there are times when having someone uh, an insurance agent that is able to think creatively can really be uh, what gets a deal done. That is a that can be a very crucial, very important part of it. Um, and so I like to to talk to different insurance agents and just you know ask them. Well, what would you do if you if, if we're buying a house that has you know knob and tube electrical? 
Um, how are you going to handle that? How, how do you handle, you know, hazardous materials? What if there's asbestos? Um, and just hear the way they process that. If they start sounding a little overwhelmed or like, oh, I don't know, we can do that. That might not be a, a, a good agent. Um, and so that's something worth considering. Uh, as well, a good agent will help you to understand if you can or should file a claim um, on, on a property uh, based on, you know, if a hailstorm comes through. Um, a good agent will, they won't be able to tell you if there is damage to the property, most likely. Um, they're not an adjuster. There's a difference between an agent and an adjuster. But they can at least tell you if it's worth it to file a claim, what the ramifications might be. Those are the things that make for a good insurance agent. Um, how about a contractor? And this is one that uh, is obviously a very important one for many people if you're purchasing a property that needs work. I'll start with this. A good contractor has a good reputation. And if you need to... Um, figure out whether they have a good reputation or not, run them by me and I'll I'll check with some of my sources if I don't already know who they are. But that reputation is gold. I've heard so many people say, you know what, I went against the recommendation of a bunch of people to use a guy and I will never do that again. I regret that. Um, and and yeah, you, you should. Um, there's a reason uh, why there are so many contractors out there right now is they're in such high demand and a lot of them aren't that good. And so you have to really vet out their reputation, maybe get some sources from them, uh, references, uh, and and check them out and make sure that they are someone that would do a good job. And of course, I have contractors that I have worked with over the years that um, that I feel like do a good job as well. Um, but if you're interviewing them on your own, look for that reputation. That's really important. When you're walking through a house with a contractor, there, there are some things that you can pick up on as well. For instance, if the contractor kind of has uh, his or her own vision, you know, um, and, and sees the potential of a house versus coming in, and, and this is kind of a common theme. Uh, we've talked about some of these people getting kind of overwhelmed. Um, if a contractor comes in, they're like, Oh man, I mean they they messed up everything in here. Like this is look at this wiring. Oh, this is going to be so much work. And if they if they keep using that type of language versus saying, "Oh man, yeah, we could just we could do this and have you thought about doing this and and they're they're bringing value versus just emoting, right? I you don't want a contractor that just emotes. I had a contractor one time uh, my very first contractor in my very first house, I didn't know how to do this, uh, how to interview a contractor. I didn't, I didn't know how to go about that process. And, um, and there wasn't as much information available back then as there is now. But I just remember every time I would ask him something, he would start with this like, <laughs> uh, you know, like he would make this sound like, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and, and it was almost like he was nervous and just just wasn't comfortable about stuff. I don't know if he wasn't comfortable about himself, comfortable about the project. It wasn't even that big of a project. Um, but that kind of comfort level, um, comfort level in themselves, comfort level in in the project, in the house, you can pick that up pretty quickly when you're walking through it with a guy um, or with a gal. You know, there aren't very many contractors that are women, but there are some. 
and um and sometimes uh, there are husband wife teams and there's there's all sorts of different ways to th- that we see that in the uh, contractor world but the point is that it you want to see a level of comfort you want to see a level of uh, that they aren't so focused on all the things wrong that they can't see all the things all the potential that can be done because you want obviously you see potential you want for them to also see potential and they uh, can hopefully bring ideas for you that will be helpful for you in the long run. Um, and, and, and that will allow for you guys to kind of bounce ideas off of each other. I think as well, how good of a listener are they? Like you want them to be able to bring ideas and whatnot, but you also they also need to be able to listen. They also need to be able to take good notes, to have um, an idea of... of what you want, and to be able to, when you say, hey, I want to do this, if if they then come back like two minutes later and say, now, do you want to do that? You know, did, do you want to replace the windows? And you just told them like a few minutes ago that you wanted to replace the windows. They're not listening. Um, or, or they're overwhelmed and not able to process everything. Uh, and so try to pick up on those types of things. And... One of the most important but overlooked traits of a contractor is how organized they are. And, oh man, that is, I mean, that really does separate, we talked about before, separating the wheat from the chaff. Uh, An organized contractor is a very rare bird. Um, But again, there are some things that you can pick up on. What type of, how are they communicating with you? Right? Are they communicating in a way that's organized? Do they have like five different emails that they're emailing you from? Uh, that's probably not very organized. Do they have like an online or, or some type of software that they use for managing their project? That's good. That's good organization. Not the end all be all, but that's good. Um, when they look at a house, do they have, are, are their thoughts organized? Are they thinking, okay, let's look at this, then let's look at this, then let's look at this, and let's take these measurements and let's do this? All of those things help you to get an idea of whether uh, whether they're organized or disorganized. And usually, if they're organized, that's a, a really good sign. Now, I know some contractors that are pretty organized but are not good at what they do because there are there's more to doing that job than just being organized. Um, but that is uh, a part of it that definitely uh, comes into play. And you can definitely pick up on that uh, in your conversation with them, just the way they just organize their thoughts and the way they think through things. Um, All right, we're starting to go over time here. One last thing, and then we're done. Closing attorney, all right? Closing attorney is uh, probably the least important out of all of these. And that's because in South Carolina, you know, some, some states don't even require closing attorneys. We do in South Carolina, they do the title work. They issue. They help to issue the 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 title insurance policy to make sure that uh, you're protected uh, in terms of your ownership of the home. And uh, with a closing attorney, um, the thing is that they do represent the buyer, but they really also just represent the transaction. Now that being said, one of the things that I like is the closing attorneys that explicitly embrace that they are representing the buyer 
in a unique way that even though they're also representing the transaction, they're, they're not really representing the seller, right? So they're representing the buyer and the transaction. Now, some, um, some closing attorneys in South Carolina and in Greenville, they will not say that they're representing the buyer. They'll only say they're representing the transaction. Me as a buyer's agent, I like the uh, the attorneys that are like that will say, "Hey, we uh, are representing the buyers as part of this. They are the ones that are paying us. They're the ones that are hiring us. We have uh, a fiduciary uh, type of relationship with them. We're also non-biased to some extent in terms of of the transaction. We have to be honest with all parties, but they are uh, the good ones, in my opinion." Uh, are the ones that say up front, hey, we are representing the buyer uh, more so than the seller in this transaction. I like that. Um, that's not the end all be all, but it, it's just it's a good part of it. It's also good if, if they are just helpful in general. And that's a little bit of a harder thing to vet out. Um, if you call a closing attorney, um, and you know, you'll probably get the, the person that answers the phone. It's not going to be the attorney. Um, but if you ask them some questions, uh, and they're able to answer your questions or, or like, hold on, let me get the answer to that right now. That's a good sign that that means they're, they're organized. That means they're helpful versus them saying, you know what, if it's an easy question, you know what? we'll need to get back with you in a couple hours. If it's an easy question, if you're just like, hey, when could you close this? When do you have availability to close this? Or, or you know, something like that. And they need to like get back with you on that. Um, that's not helpful. That's not good. And I've got closing attorneys at the actual attorney. I've got on my phone, I can text them and get an answer from them. But at the end of the day, most closing attorneys defer the majority of their work onto their paralegals. And so the rubber meets the road with the paralegal. A good attorney has good paralegals. A bad attorney has bad paralegals. At the end of the day, that is what determines more so than anything, what is a good attorney or not. And you say, well, how do I interview the paralegals? Well, unfortunately you can't, but I can share a lot of experience that I have had over the years with different attorneys and can can help you with that. I have people all the time actually that are having issues with with uh, different closing attorneys, investors that are are cranking out a bunch of of different deals uh, throughout the year. Like, hey, who's a good closing attorney? Like, they're I'm just having all kinds of trouble with paralegal doing this or that. Um, and so I, I make recommendations to to people all the time for for uh, for different closing attorneys. Um, and so I can help with that as well. Unfortunately, that's going to be one that. Uh, perhaps you can do some online research, but it's a little bit trickier from the standpoint of trying to interview them and, and trying to to get a sense of what these different parties are like. Because you're probably the first time you call, um, if they don't know who you are, you're just going to be talking to the secretary or just going to be talking to the front desk person. Um, but the closing attorney is is a big deal. Um, at the end of the day. From the standpoint of if you're doing anything creative, if you're trying to close quickly, you want to make sure that that is a good closing attorney, that they can handle it, that they know what they're doing, that they can help you in a situation where unique things are happening. Um, and again, I can assist with that. And if you need assistance with that, I hope 
that you will consider using me as your realtor if you're not already doing that. Um, my contact information is in the show notes. I always say that. I always say, please rate and review, subscribe, do all those cool things to the pod. Hope you guys are enjoying it. That is a wrap for today. Let me know if you have any questions, but until next time, stay safe. Enjoy the nice spring weather outside.